away from the fact that, you know, brains have these chemical imbalances and we're being chemists and we're in there and we're rebalancing things and helping people. The right way to look at psychiatric medications is from a drug-centered model. And what that means is each drug has a signature drug effect and they can be leveraged in therapeutic ways. And the real benefit actually of looking at it as a drug-centered approach is you actually start to be way more well-informed about what the drugs are doing and you can monitor them in a much safer way. Because if you're giving someone who has severe anxiety an SSRI and you're saying, okay, maybe you're able to function a little bit better at work now, you're a perfectionist, work stresses were really pushing you over the edge. Well, I'm not just going to be interested in work now. How's this affecting your relationship? How is this affecting your ability to be in tune with your children, you know, when they're going to come up to you and they're going to have problems? Are you going to be as attuned to them? What about your wife? You know, so we start thinking more globally about what is the effect of this in all of your interactions in your life and your motivation and your dreams and you can actually steer people in a, in, in a better way, you know, in, in therapeutically using these drugs rather than being like, oh, we've just, we fixed it. We fixed your chemical imbalance. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Yosef Witt-During. He is a board-certified psychiatrist, as well as a former FDA medical officer. He's a specialist in adverse drug reactions of psychiatric medications. He's the co-founder of Witt-During Psychiatry, along with his wife, Dr. Marissa Witt-During. Together, they provide a comprehensive drug taper program, conservative medication management, and supportive coaching for those withdrawing from psychiatric drugs. He's also the host of the podcast, Life on Last Meds. You can find his podcast as well as shorter informational videos on his YouTube channel, Wit During Psychiatry. Um, I originally found Dr. Yosef through a related Twitter account, not his own, at PSSD Network, which is the post-SSRI sexual dysfunction network. So that was a topic of interest because uh, many who are familiar with this, either from personal experience or clinical experience, are aware that SSRIs, which are the most common class of antidepressants, often cause sexual dysfunction not only during their use, but after as well. And so there's there was a Twitter account raising awareness about this issue, and I thought it would be something interesting to cover. But once I connected with Dr. Yosef, I realized he's really a wealth of information, and I'm excited to dive in. This conversation will pick up where episode 20, way back in the 20s, we're in the 70s now, episode 20 left off. You might remember, if you've been a longtime listener of the show, that I spoke with Dr. Roger McFillin in an episode called Mental Health in the Age of Misinformation. Um, Dr. McFillin is very critical of the psychiatry field, and Dr. Yosef is as well. But what's really exciting is that he's actually a psychiatrist critical of psychiatry. So welcome and uh, thank you for speaking your mind freely, Dr. Yosef. It's great to have your expertise here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
There's so many things we could get into post SSRI sexual dysfunction, benzodiazepine withdrawal. Um, let's see if we can start with the basics. How did you end up going to psychiatry school only to find yourself working to help people get off of medication? Yeah. Um, I'll give you kind of the, the abbreviated version for that. Um, I've thought about this a lot, actually. You know, I, I look back at my life and um, I was always really into self-help and psychology, um, like most people who go into mental health, um, you know, came for, I guess, some, some of my own deficits. I, I think I, growing up at least, I, I, I did have a hard time kind of connecting with people. You know, I, I kind of come from a pretty low EQ family and that was just like one of my deficits. So meeting people, getting girlfriends, friends, all that kind of stuff was a little rocky. And I, I kind of ended up reading a lot about that. I was just like, oh my God, why is this so difficult for me? You know, how can I improve on this? And I was super into it. And um, I, you know, my mom is Chinese. So uh, the, the other thing is I had to become like a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or something. So I went to medical school, still really interested in self-help, coaching, um, uh, psychology. And then psychiatry just seemed like this kind of interesting thing oh wow i can you know share kind of my love for personal development and and such with um this field of medicine that might have something to do with that and um anyway so i end up becoming a psychiatrist i come to the u.s and study and i discover that the way we are helping people in psychiatry has nothing to do with like really like personal development at least in the field of, of psychiatry it's it's kind of this production line that just kind of flicks meds at people and um it's kind of dressed up in a lot of this science about you know you know whether there are neurological deficits for some people chemical imbalances deficits in brain derived neurotrophic factors or whatever the chemical of the day was you know that was getting spat out but all of this stuff was kind of being packaged in this model to kind of just say, we need to give people more medications. Um, and that's how all of the services were set up. It sits like poorly with me kind of immediately when I go there. I'm just like, hey, we're not really like helping these people. Like someone's coming to my clinic and they've been molested or, you know, there's, you know, they've, you know, there's, there's some contextual stress that that's causing a lot of anxiety and, this appointment is really like geared towards like, oh, you have these symptoms now, you have depression and you should be on this drug. And I'm looking around and I'm kind of seeing everyone practicing in this way. And, and then I see a lot of my colleagues and they're not really having a problem with this. They're giving themselves pats on the back. They feel like this is really evidence-based. And I start looking into the clinical research and I start learning from people like David Healy, Joanna Moncrieff, Robert Whitaker some of these people that are putting out more critical thoughts and and I realized that they're right. And I realized that if anyone actually looked at the literature with a critical eye for more than like five minutes, they would realize that a clinical trial for an antidepressant, which is eight to 12 weeks long, where the primary outcome measure is a reduction in symptoms of depression, doesn't really tell a shit about what it's doing because it's just saying, we're going to constrict your emotions, we're going to lower you down on this scale, and we're going to say we're going to treat your depression. The fact of the matter is this doesn't make sense for the majority of people who end up on these drugs for decades, but we have this whole kind of system that's cheerleading people onto these these drugs, and, 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 and I was going crazy. I'm just like, 
how does no one see this? Like what we're doing, like it makes no sense long-term. Like you must be seeing the same thing. But again, we're all kind of like lulled into this state where, oh, you know, the chairman of our department and the professors, they're pumping out this clinical research. They're talking at these conferences. They're working with pharmaceutical companies. They're not saying anything. So like, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong. And so the more I sit there, I get kind of pissed off with sort of like the careerism of everything. It, it ends up being this thing where I think there's a lot of ethical compromise. And I think a lot of people are trying to kind of do well in their career. So they, they get involved in this kind of research. They make sure they don't say things that kind of might upset where funding is coming from. And I actually think about quitting. And I just go, you know, I don't want to be kind of, you know, looped in with a bunch of people who are like, you know, just kind of drugging people instead of actually helping them. And um, and I want to say this, I, I think there is a case for some drugs and some serious mental illness and things like that. There's always a place for it. But the um, this we're at a point where they're just giving out like 90% more than they should be. Like Like one in 10 people on them, like might actually need them. The rest of it is just like, they're, they're probably made worse by it. That's that's my opinion, just on what I'm seeing on the ground. Um, and so, I think about quitting. In fact, I actually get in trouble a lot during residency for just being insubordinate and like having the wrong ideas. And my wife ends up telling me that I should stay. Um, and I end up having some actually good professors. They they channel this towards doing some research. I end up publishing book chapters and getting involved. Like talking about drug side effects and things like that. And then, you know, I went to the FDA as a, as a medical safety officer in the division of psychiatry, starting to learn about, you know, how does, how do government agencies um, assess side effects, risks, you know, how do they communicate them to the public and drug labels? And then I also end up going to pharma and I work in three different pharmaceutical companies for clinical research and drug safety roles. Eventually, decide that I'm kind of done being quiet about this. And this is actually at the start of the year. I, I quit my pharma job and um, really kind of revved up my practice and became very vocal online about a lot of the problems that I was seeing. And my practice right now, like if you come to see me in my, in my practice, two things are going on with you. You either have protracted withdrawal injury. Um, you've tried to come off an antidepressant or a benzodiazepine and you've sustained neurological damage. That's one group. The other group of people are polydrugged on several medications. They're coming to the realization that they're just getting made worse by being on multiple drugs and they need someone to help untangle like a mess of medications. And, and so that's my new kind of bread and butter. And that's a long answer, but that's, that's kind of the story. I love that there's a place for you in psychiatry and that there are people who need a doctor that's willing to be all honest with them um, and that, that you've carved out this niche. It seems like there's really a lot of potential to help people. And so earlier you described that a lot of the so-called evidence used to support the use of uh, psych meds, especially antidepressants, are these short-term clinical trials where there's, they're showing eight to 12 weeks, there's a reduction in distress due to numbing, but that that doesn't really make sense if these drugs are going to be used by people for years on end. And so something I want to clarify for our listeners, because not everybody knows this, I have therapists in my audience, but also people from all walks of life, is that when it comes to a diagnosis of major depression, you only have to have that diagnosis, or you only have to have clinically significant symptoms for two weeks. 
to meet the criteria for major depressive disorder single episode. Um, whether that that single episode is mild, moderate, or, or severe, or you may have recurring episodes or they may last longer. If they're two years without more than two months of relief, then that's persistent depressive disorder. And uh, sometimes that can get labeled as treatment resistant. But but that was something that I noticed in one of these trainings that I went to uh, years ago, because as a therapist, you're encouraged to go to trainings put on by psychiatrists. And I remember looking at the outcomes of one of these studies and saying, well, there was a reduction in distress after X amount of time, but you're looking at major depressive disorder. That means that this might have been a time-limited condition in the first place. So why would people stay on it? Another thing I, I think we need to be talking about more in the culture in general is that a lot of people I see in my therapy practice, um, especially like people in their 20s, um, have been on meds for depression and anxiety for years, maybe since they started adolescence, and nobody ever told them. No therapist, no psychiatrist or primary care physician ever told them this diagnosis, whether it's major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, which by the way is a six-month um, you have to have symptoms for six months to qualify for that criteria, um, that this isn't a life sentence. It's not like saying you have diabetes, right? It's not like saying there's this thing that's permanent about you. It's, it's that you can have these symptoms for a period of your life and it could be in relation to all kinds of things. And so I think you and I, in our own ways, are both asking the question, why would you put people on drugs that are really hard to get off of? or put them on drugs without any plan to get off of them uh, for something that is actually quite likely to be time limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it makes no sense to me. I can give you some comments about like why I think it is the way that it is. Like, I mean, there was this whole thing about the chemical imbalance, which has been, you know, that was sort of like the Trojan horse of, of how they introduced a lot of the antidepressants back then oh, we give people these drugs, they look better, and they do look better. I mean, these drugs are psychoactive, and if you have someone who has severe anxiety and you give it to them, it's going to blunt it and they'll look better. Maybe because we know this drug affects serotonin, that they have some kind of serotonin imbalance or something like that. Okay, yeah, there, there's, some, there's some plausibility there. And so there was this idea that a lot of this mental illness was really uh, biological in nature, you know, stemming from kind of innate dysfunctions in your head. And it's complicated, right? Because we do know that there are psychiatric illnesses that really are genetic and really do come out of nowhere. I mean, you have, you know, schizo like some people with schizophrenia, some people with bipolar disorder, there are severe forms of depression, which come out of the blue with no contextual stresses. There's nothing in the diet that's going to do anything about that. And so you have this kind of category of mental illnesses that really are diseases and um, and they exist. And for a long time, so that, that's kind of what psychiatrists dealt with. But then in around the 50s, with the advent of a lot of the newer uh, drugs like Librium, like the benzodiazepines, the antipsychotics and the antidepressants, oh my God, there's a market opportunity. And you know, it's, it's not like this crazy calculated thing, or maybe maybe it is, but the way I think about it was there was suddenly a massive incentive to sell these new medications. And so we start talking a lot more about, oh, depression or anxiety disorders and um, juvenile bi bipolar disorder and things like that. And because there's such a financial incentive now, 
they're turning up in medical journals and conferences. And again, you know, you talked about social contagion, but that's where it really begins. You know, when there's a group of people who have like an agenda to get the message out about something, you know, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And so while like mental illness, you know, it used to be, oh yeah, this is probably biological. It starts to kind of eat all of these normal things up, like all of this kind of garden variety, depression and anxiety from contextual stresses and things that just like happen in people's lives. They start being kind of, oh, this is major depressive disorder. It's just like the other stuff. And it's not, you know, it's, it's mostly contextual based, based on contextual stresses and it gets better. But that's how a lot of it is being described from like a, you know, from like an individual person sense as well. Like sometimes it's like a lot easier actually for someone to grab onto a diagnosis, especially if they're, you know, especially if they're really confused about what, what's going on with them. And that's really easy. You know, I think about people who have like trauma or abusive households and things like that, or who are struggling to find themselves. If someone comes along and tells you you have a mental illness, that's like a really clean way to kind of understand what, what's going on. And there can be some benefit in that simplicity, but it, but it ends up being really misleading. And so I guess the original question, you know, coming back to that was, you know, why, I think it was why, you know, why are so many people being kind of diagnosed with this thing that sounds like long-term and permanent? Uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of highly resourced people who are, you know, kind of putting out information that that makes it seem like that. Um, and there's massive mis misunderstanding of, you know, the medical literature supporting, you know, the utility of that um, all over the place. Treatment isn't really based on informed consent then, is it? If you're not given accurate information about your diagnosis and prognosis, then how is that informed consent? And then there's the, the element of consenting to the possible long-term effects of these drugs, which is something that you specialize in. Before we get into that though, you mentioned sort of the chemical imbalance hypothesis. And I've been hearing lately that that's been debunked, but I haven't really looked into it myself. I was curious if you had anything to say about that. And also if you have anything to say about um, uh, Chris Palmer, do you know him, um, his approach, yeah. uh, the metabolic, sure. that, so the, he, he makes a good case in his book, Brain Energy, which I'm reading right now, that all mental disorders um, that aren't just in reaction to a life stressor are essentially metabolic disorders of the brain. So how is the field of psychiatry evolving in its understanding of, is it a chemical imbalance? Is it a metabolic disorder? Is it an electrical thing? What's going on in there? Or is it a microbiome thing? Yeah. So let me, let me break it down piece by piece. Yeah. So the chemical imbalance has been, I guess, you know, quote unquote debunked. Why has it been debunked? Yeah, because we got a bunch of people who had like problems with like depression and then we stuck needles in their spine and we measured the level of serotonin and it was completely normal compared to uh, people who were not depressed. Okay, you know, no, you know, no chemical imbalance. It's still used as like almost like a meme as this easily understandable way to kind of tell people to, oh, there's something wrong. Over time, it's been kind of replaced by other things like, oh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. You know, you have deficits in that. And if you take an antidepressant, it, somehow it's helping the brain's neuroplasticity. They'll always kind of swap in like a new biological like explanation for, um, for mental illness. But don't I think you think, Chris Palmer, 
Yeah. Sorry, I know you're in the middle of something mm-hmm. here, but when it comes to brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, it's my understanding as a layperson that that is really important and that exercise, I mean, that's why is one of the big reasons that exercise is so good for our mental health. Do you disagree on BDNF? Yeah, I think it's a lot of shit. Um, I think mm. like it's, you know, you, you cannot um, say that someone has like a depressive or an anxiety disorder because of some like chemical in the brain. I mean, we know it's so much more complicated than that. You know, there's contextual stresses. And so I really take a strong stance that anyone that's looking for like a boiled down reductionalist view of like, oh, if I can just fix the BDNF in there, if I can just fix my neuroplasticity, like everything is going to be better. Sure. Maybe it's like one factor. Maybe it plays like a 5% role in it, but focusing on that massively misleading to people. Um, Hmm. And it's and it's that whole thing of like it's knowing like why you take the drugs and and I'll tell you about Joanna Moncrieff's work who you may be familiar with already but she was kind of like the antidote to the chemical imbalance theory uh, and she says we need to get away from the fact that you know brains have these chemical imbalances and we're being chemists and we're in there and we're rebalancing things and helping people the right way to look at psychiatric medications is from a drug centered model and what that means is each drug has a signature drug effect, like alcohol or opiates or methamphetamine, and they can be leveraged in therapeutic ways. Serotonin antidepressants, for instance, like Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, they are emotional constrictors. These drugs don't make people feel better. You know, they, they reduce anxiety. That is like the drug effect if you talk to people. It usually kicks in over a week to two weeks, to, you know, several weeks. That's... That's a drugged feeling that can be totally therapeutic. And I'm not going to say it's always bad to be on these drugs. If you have mega severe OCD, anxiety, you've had it since birth and you're going to kill yourself and this is the only way that you can survive, take that Zoloft. That's a good risk-benefit equation and you should be glad that we have that drug. But you shouldn't be taking it thinking that it's like fixing a chemical imbalance. You should be taking it just being like, there's a therapeutic drug effect here. Okay, I'm going to use it. Maybe you use it sparingly because of that, because you know there's dependence and, and things like that. Same with psychosis, Risperdal, Haldol, all of these drugs. They're not fixing the underlying cause of your schizophrenia. It's not like a vitamin for your brain. You have schizophrenia, you have psychosis, you have paranoia for, for reasons that we don't understand yet and we're looking into it. But when you take this drug, it's going to constrict those thoughts. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to turn the volume down so you can function. And the real benefit, actually, of looking at it as a drug-centered approach is you actually start to be way more well-informed about what the drugs are doing, and you can monitor them in a much safer way. Because if you're giving someone who has severe anxiety an SSRI, and you're saying, okay, maybe you're able to function a little bit better at work now, you're a perfectionist, work stresses were really pushing you over the edge well, I'm not just going to be interested in work now. How is this inf- affecting your relationship? How is this affecting your ability to be in tune with your children You know, when they're going to come up to you and they're going to have problems? Are you going to give a shit like you used to? Is it, are you going to be as attuned to them? What about your wife? You know, So we start thinking more globally about what is the effect of this in all of your interactions in your life and your motivation and your dreams and you can actually steer people 
in 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 a better way, you know, in, in therapeutically using these drugs rather than being like, oh, we've just we fixed it, we fixed your chemical imbalance. It's like, and that's actually a way more fulfilling way to practice psychiatry, and it's it's a reason why I think that family medicine doctors unless they're willing to do this, should have no part in prescribing these medications because you cannot do that in a 15-minute appointment. You can't do it in a 30-minute appointment. You need to know people and you need to know about their lives if you're going to be tinkering with their chemistry and it's going to be affecting their relationships. Um, so, yeah. This brings that's, us that's my to download. the, the yeah. combination yeah. of emotional blunting and sexual side effects. So something interesting that I learned recently is that, well, I knew this about painkillers, whether we're talking about opiates or just your common household ibuprofen, for example, um, that that physical and emotional pain in the brain are very linked. And that when you take um, a pain reliever, it also can have an emotional numbing effect. And that the SSRIs and other antidepressants do something similar where, the, yes, they make your own pain less, but they also reduce your ability to feel the pain of others. So that's some of that relational difficulty that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, the impact on relationships from these medications can be severe and it can go in, in a lot of different dimensions. And I know opiates, yes, you know, people think pain killers, but they're massive anxiety reducers as well. Anyone who's ever taken these medications know that they kind of lull you into this you know, sense of comfort, um, they really reduce anxiety and they used to be used for that for, you know, in the past before, you know, obviously they cause horrific dependence and they're difficult. And so they use, they're not used for that now, but you know, how can these drugs mess with your relationship? Right. Uh, and I had this experience. I took Zoloft uh, for a little bit as like an experiment and my wife took it, took it as well. And we were kind of seeing like what it did. She she became more energized. She she had a really hard time sleeping. She became more kind of irritable in the days that she took it. I was shut down. You know, I I I mean, I took it irresponsibly. I really wanted to see what it would do. I like. I think I started at like fifty and put myself on a hundred within two or three days. That's like a faster kind of increase than than you should do. But I had a lot of emotional blunting, and I just remember her like being upset with me, and I was just sitting on the couch and. It was just so easy just to just be like, oh, yeah, that's okay, and just kind of dismiss it. And I was just kind of thinking about this this disconnected state, and that's what it felt like to me. I felt disconnected from my emotions, how like, um, you know, how damaging it could be in a relationship. Because my wife told me like when we came out of it, she's like, I hated you on Zoloft. Like you were so mm -hmm. disconnected, and and some of that may be, you know, in general, you know, I'm. I'm very, I'm, uh, you know, I, in general, I have a hard time kind of with others and it's kind of like this journey of me kind of always like trying to be attuned to how other people are feeling. And so you put that on top of me and um, it kind of pushes me into this place where I'm like very not aware of other people. But over time, the stories that I heard, um, you know, working with, with clients is like, yeah, shut down, blunted, having a hard time connecting, you know, used to be used to like care about like my children being upset. Then I got on the medication and I just like didn't, I came out of it and I was just like devastated realizing I'd just been ignoring my child, like playing computer games when they'd be coming up to me. I mean, the sexual dysfunction side of things is, you know, while you're on the drug, you're not interested in sex and it's twofold, you know, one, it's just, it shuts down that kind of libido. So there's a psychological component, which is like constricted. There's less of that 
desire to have sex, but it also makes it difficult for you to have an erection or to be interested in sex, just like the mechanical parts of it. And I know we'll talk about PSSD later, but in a very, in, you know, in a in a smaller proportion of people, um, it endures. You know, when they come off the drugs, they they still have you know, kind of horrific sexual dysfunction and emotional blunting for a really long time. And that's just a nightmare. Um, and the other thing that sometimes happens on these medications is people get really disinhibited. You know, they'll start an SSRI and they'll go out and they'll have an affair or, or they'll do something like that. And it, and it, so it can just, there's so many ways, like if you're not monitoring this carefully with a professional, things can get out of hand like very quickly and then like you go and see the doctor and they tell you you have like a bipolar disorder or something like that. They, you know, you get shunted towards more medications because they're not aware of um, what they're really doing to people. That, that's a phenomenon in and of itself. People with no prior history of mania having a manic reaction to antidepressants then being labeled bipolar. But before we go any further into that, I interrupted you several minutes ago when I asked you what you thought of Chris Palmer's brain energy hypothesis, and you were about mm. to share, and then I cut you off. So what did you want to say about that? Oh, yeah, Chris Chris Palmer's brain energy. Like, it's this, like, unifying hypothesis that, um, you know, dietary problems, you know, you know psychological stress, um, uh, toxins, anything like like the way that causes mental illness is it, it impairs like i guess the way the mitochondria function in the cells and that does it so as a unifying theory i think it's i think it's i think it's okay um for for what's going on um there i mean that kind, kind of makes sense to me as like a like as a framework but in terms of like the practical world i don't know like i think there's some practical things in his book which is really like be very like mindful of like your diet. Be very mindful that a lot of medications can actually impair your, you know, the the way your cells produce energy. And when I spoke to him, you know, he says most of his work now is uh, pulling people off medications which are just he thinks are causing um, impairment of uh, in cellular function. And um, and he's probably the most well known for like the ketogenic diet. I mean, he has a lot of um, talks about how uh, ketones are a much more efficient source of fuel for mitochondrial functioning. And so I like Chris. I, I, I think he's really smart and has a lot of good things to say. It also raises the question uh, that if some of these more commonly used psychiatric medications that are supposed to help people with depression, anxiety, or even psychosis, if their side effects include weight gain and metabolic disruption, then aren't they causing the very problem that they're supposed to be solving, according to this hypothesis? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they can be a double-edged sword. Um, yes, there's a direct drug effect that is blunting and that can be therapeutic for someone. But if it's making you obese, like a lot of the medications do, then... Um, it's going to be working working against you as well. Totally. I have so many questions for you. Um, yeah. One is when people are starting to come off of medication, which I know is your primary area of focus is helping people with that, how can they tell the difference between withdrawal symptoms versus, oh, this is me unmedicated? In other words, this is how crazy I am. This is how depressed or dysfunctional 
I really am. And this is why I need meds. This is why I went on meds in the first place. Maybe I can't trust myself to come off of meds. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's super obvious and sometimes sometimes it's not, you know, it, I think we've been like lulled into a place where we, where people don't really pay attention to symptoms anymore. They're just like, oh, it's depression. Like, well, what does that mean? Oh, it's five out of nine symptoms. Well, you know, which nine? Oh, and, and you know, which five should it be? Any five of them. So, so I mean, you could technically have like a complete, com- you know, a combination of every, everything. And and it could look a million different ways, but that's not really what it looks like. I mean, it, it's not that random. Um, again, this is, I'm shooting from the hip here. You know, this is not a consensus. This is just, you know, you know one, one man and his journey trying to figure things out. Depression looks a certain way most of the time. And, and I'm going to talk about your garden variety, contextual stress, depression. Usually it evolves from anxiety. You have someone who's in an impossible situation, very conflicted, doesn't know which way to go. They feel hopeless. They feel very, very anxious. And then they fall in. Yeah, they fall into a state of hopelessness and apathy and um, sadness. And they just feel trapped. That's to me. That's Boom. depression. Yeah. And like. We don't acknowledge that often enough. I I just want to highlight how important what you just said is because people talk about depression and anxiety, oftentimes lumping them together or talking about them as if they're completely separate issues, but how depression originates from anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's you just nailed it so beautifully. Please continue. (laughs) And, and that's, and, and most mental health professionals know this. If you, if you're dealing with these people and they're coming in through your door, that's what you're seeing. And so, uh, and, and, you know, so it has a clinical course. It has symptoms which are fairly common. You know, you won't find this in the DSM. I don't know. It's It ends up being kind of com- common sense eventually over time. And so when someone's coming off these medications, I'm comparing it to their baseline. You know, what, like how are you feeling, you know, when the depression evolved? Sometimes it's like really confusing, right? Because they'll have that depression that evolved and they're like, I was really depressed for like two years and then I decided to take something. And and so we kind of focus on how they felt then. And then they get on like drugs for like two or three years and they're just like, I don't know how I feel now. I'm all discombobulated. Maybe it's kind of helping me. Maybe it's giving me this weird anxiety. And so then there's that period where they have this kind of like, kind of like, you know, it's somewhat therapeutic because it's suppressing some things, but there's also this kind of like chemical component to what's going on. And then there's that. And then there's the withdrawal period. And so when I'm withdrawing people off the medications, I'm always kind of thinking in my mind, like, how did they feel like right at the start before they got on this? And that's most important when I guess the withdrawal symptoms or the symptoms that are happening then are purely like psychiatric. Um, And because that's when it's the most confusing. I work with a lot of people who um, they have neurotoxicity from, from the drugs. And so if they start complaining about like shooting pains, like dizziness, headaches, you know, gastrointestinal symptoms, like, you know, when we're pulling people off these drugs, it's going to have global neurological side effects. So if it's coming in a constellation of symptoms where it's not just emotional and psychiatric, it's much more likely that these are withdrawal symptoms. Um, And so that's, that's kind of how I'm, how I'm teasing these things out. And it's also a clinical course. Like if I just did a reduction, you know, a 10% drop or a 20% drop on a medication, I look at the half-life of the medication and say, okay, well, 
five terminal half lives is about you know five days later you know this is this should be when things kick in and if it kind of lines up with that that they had a flare up of some symptoms i'm going to say okay the the timeline fits that this group of symptoms that just emerged they're likely related to me withdrawing the drug how are you sleeping sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health equally important to nutrition and exercise yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. And what type of support do people need through that rocky period? Because I've heard it can be hell. I mean, on your YouTube channel, you mentioned brain zaps uh, that that are common with withdrawing from, um, oh, what's the one that's famous for the brain zaps? I always forget. So so Paxil Paxil and effects are are like really, really bad. Yeah. Yeah. So during that rocky period where people's nervous systems are all over the place. They're maybe experiencing brain zaps, other withdrawal symptoms. What what are the worst hurdles to overcome and how do you get people through that time? Mm-hmm. So the main thing is you want to do a controlled withdrawal because uh, you can really make someone's life miserable to the point where they want to kill themselves. And so the goal is, is that you withdraw the medications at a rate that's um, not too destabilizing. So if you have someone on, you know, effects of the bad one, you know, you're talking about 300 milligrams, you know, high dose, you know, of that, you know, we're not going to just, well, let, let, let's say for instance, like, a, you know, we, we drop them down by like 10% and they have brain zaps and they have a decrease in their level of functioning. So I always look at their level of functioning. Uh, withdrawal, withdrawal is usually not easy. I mean, we're putting you into an unbalanced chemical state 
And so, I, you know, I say, they'll usually say I'm more anxious, you know, I'm a little irritable, but I'm still able to function. I'm still able to go to work. I'm still able to look after my children. I'm still able to do the things I usually do. Great. We're going to continue at that dose reduction, 10% from the starting dose the whole way down. If they come and tell me, hey, that reduction totally destabilized me. Like I'm having like burning pains in my hands. My head is, I'm getting zaps. I haven't gone to work three days this week. I'll go, oh shit, you know, we're going to pull you back up. And the next reduction is going to be 50% of that because it's not like a sprint. It's, it's kind of like a marathon. So I'm, I'm trying to bring people down in a way that's giving their brain a chance to kind of kind of rebuild itself as I gradually remove this. So the main thing of helping people get through this is to not do it too fast. It needs to be completely um, paced with the person you're working with. Um, and so it's very reactive. You want to check in fairly frequently and, and, and kind of get it at the rate that works for them. That's like the main thing. Are there any additional tools besides medications, any lifestyle interventions or practices that can help people cope with those withdrawal symptoms better? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the main ones like, and not to get into the weeds, a lot of people want to, should I take this supplement? Should I do this and that? I'm going to boil it down to you. There's a few simple things. Stop stimulants. Um, you know, if, it, if you're using caffeine or nicotine, cut it out. You can cold turkey, stop those ones. It will make your withdrawal about a thousand times easier. Maybe not a thousand times. Maybe easier like three said times than easier. done, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> stop it's, stimulants. Stop stimulants, yep. And so that's like the first thing. Like you're most of the way there. And it's, especially if we're talking about a sedative, like if you're coming off Xanax and you think you're going to do that on caffeine and nicotine, man, are you making things more difficult for yourself? Something that could have taken you, a, you know, nine months is going to take you a year and a half because you're just not going to tolerate it as well. The other thing that you want to keep in mind, um, like I don't tell people to get in the weeds with supplements. I, I advocate like a generally healthy diet. If you have never done gluten-free, if you've never done dairy-free, a lot of my patients have tried that, like in a, like an elimination-style diet, and it helps them. Do I think it's something specifically with withdrawal that it's helpful? No. Do, do I think it's something that for some people has a massive impact on just their general well-being, you know, in, in many aspects of their health and maybe that helps with withdrawal? Yeah. You know, changing diet does. And so stop stimulants and try a new diet I think is really helpful. And the other thing really is like, it's like a tapering strategy as well. For instance, you want to come off your benzodiazepine, but you're taking several other medications, like maybe you're taking Stratera, maybe you're taking like um, Wellbutrin. Um, we're we're going to taper you off stimulating medications first, because I know that if I reduce your benzodiazepine, you know, you're going to lose that sedative cover and you're going to have a harder time during withdrawal. So there's there's a way that you can pull off medications in a strategic manner that will lessen the symptoms during withdrawal and ultimately make it a faster and smoother way out for someone. And here I am just caught on the part where you suggest that someone would even be on both a benzo and a stimulant at the same time. And I'm thinking, who put that person on these drugs? Um, so many well, you places. Know, they, over, they overshot with the benzo and so they needed they need something to help them get up in the morning, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, at what point is this no longer psychiatry, but just mixing uppers and downers? I mean, like, how is that any different from someone, you know, snorting cocaine and then drinking to fall asleep? I mean, it's, (laughs) that's a little more extreme, but arguably not that much more. So I do want to talk about benzodiazepine overprescription. And, but you also mentioned um, an elimination diet and that reminded me of something. So um, I had an aunt with schizophrenia or uh, schizoaffective actually. Um, and she had it from before I was born all the way until she died a few years ago in a very unhealthy state. Um, and in college, I briefly took a class. Unfortunately, I had to drop it because I was taking too many credits, but it was fascinating for the first few weeks that I was there on nutritional psychology. And my professor had an interesting story where his daughter had um, exhibited prodromal symptoms and then eventually uh, full-blown symptoms of psychosis in early adulthood, which is usually when it comes on. uh, Right. So for those who aren't familiar, if someone is going to develop schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, usually the signs start to come on in the early 20s or so. That was what was happening with his daughter. And they actually were able to trace the psychotic symptoms to a gluten allergy. And when they removed gluten from her diet, her psychotic symptoms went away. And hearing that story just blew my mind because I have seen firsthand from from a very young age what a diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective can do to someone. It can completely take your life away. It can make you completely dependent on others and unable to function, to get a job, to have a relationship, to do anything meaningful, or to be physically active and healthy. And so to think that there's even one person in the world who is on that track to lose their entire future where this could be stopped by removing something from their diet just floored me. And it made me that much more upset that nobody had ever tried any nutritional interventions with my aunt. Not that she would have, I mean, she would have put up a fight. She was eating a gallon of ice cream a day, but um, how, how common is that? To what extent do hidden allergies or, or nutritional imbalances, I know like nutritional deficiencies like B vitamin deficiencies, which are really common in vegans, for example, can cause OCD and even psychosis symptoms. So do you encounter that in your practice and do you work with nutrition? Um, I, I don't. And I guess I'll say it's not really my specialty. I think talking to Chris uh, Palmer, he seems to do a lot more of that just from the talks that I've heard him give but I think the the story is a good one that you know people have noticed these things I know Chris has noticed these things before like putting people on ketogenic diets and they come out of like decades of psychosis um it's definitely I mean I don't think it's going to work for everyone but it's you know maybe there are autoimmune components to to psychosis i think that's very possible i mean we see lots of autoimmune conditions like lupus and encephalitis autoimmune encephalitis cause psychosis and so if you remove things like gluten if you remove other drugs which are revving up your your autoimmune system to the point where it, it crosses a threshold and then it's like messing with your brain and your neurons in some way if you if you reduce the amount of inflammation in your body by changing your diet, maybe you pop below that threshold, and now you don't need Risperdal or long term antipsychotic treatment and all of the things that go along with that. So, 
I mean, in a, in a perfect world, what I would tell everyone to do is, you know, if you're thinking about getting on a medication, stop caffeine, stop nicotine, fix your diet, and then just wait. Like those, those are the, the main things. If you were just going to keep it simple, um, where, you know, and if things are still really like rocky after that, then, then maybe have a think about it. But if you haven't done those things, I, I think you could, I mean, and stop using drugs and alcohol. You know, I should have said that as well. If you've, if you've done those things, then you're in a better place to make a good decision about whether to take medication or not. Help me with the stop caffeine thing because, you know, here I am on behalf of, you know, three quarters of American citizens going over my dead body. <laughs> you know, it's sure, like such yeah. a part of our culture. Um, I That said, I mean, I think there's there's something kind of in American culture where there's like the wine mom meme. And then there's also the not before I've had my coffee meme. And some people really overdo it. I'm like a one or two cup a day kind of girl myself. That said, um, you say quit caffeine, like it's easy. I'm sure you've had people put up a fight on this one. How, why, why is it important to quit caffeine? And how do you what kind yeah. of supports can someone put into place to help? I mean, because caffeine withdrawal itself, I'm sure, is just Brutal. as harsh as the withdrawal from psychiatric meds. How yeah, do you I'll convince tell, people to do story. that? I'll tell you a story just so people know my bias towards it and why I say it so so strongly. Um, I um, I used to live in Texas, I, and I would chew tobacco, and um, I would also drink coffee and I, I was fine for several years until I had uh, my daughter. This is about three years ago. I left residency. I went and worked in a pharmaceutical company, super stressful, a lot of academic stresses. It's completely non-clinical, clinical research. It's like learning a new career. Things went higher, more caffeine, more nicotine. I went to the FDA. That was a whole new job in regulation. It got in drug regulation. It got out of control. I got to a point where I was drinking, this would have been about a little over a year ago, where I was drinking a big cup of coffee in the morning and I was drinking like a soda around noon. And I was probably putting about five Zins in my mouth throughout the day. These are the nicotine um, pouches. Um, and I would go to sleep at, I would go to sleep at, I, I would feel so tired at 4 p.m. I could fall asleep. And I remember for a long time, this kind of fatigue and lethargy was building up. And I was thinking, oh, you know, I have a young kid. I keep on doing these new jobs that are challenging where I have all these demands. It's obvious that I'm irritable and tired and I feel bad and I want to crash. And, um, but eventually it got to a point where I'm like, this level of fatigue is not normal for someone my age. And I ended up going down a rabbit hole of something called like adrenal fatigue. I don't know how it ended up on my radar. But they were talking about, you know, if you have like a stressful job, I had a stressful job. And if you were using things like stimulants that kept on kind of uh, exogenously, you know, externally, chemically causing your adrenals to secrete extra cortisol, that you could actually burn out the system, you know, that you could put too much pressure on the, the, the adrenals and you could end up in a state of lethargy. And I went down this this rabbit hole and I'll put my tin hat on now at the moment. And when I was in there, I encountered a lot of people saying, you know, there's so much like pro-caffeine kind of uh, newspaper articles and things like that saying it, you know, 
makes you live longer, this and that. And uh, just like the pharmaceutical industry, you know, when you have a group of people who are selling a product, you're more likely to get a positive spin on things. And so I was like, okay, well, I see the corollary. I'm, I'm, I'm already really familiar with that in pharma. And so you know, may, maybe some of that's happening with coffee because I'd heard a lot of positive things about coffee. And, um, and so I decided to stop and um, said, maybe I have adrenal fatigue. And oh, sorry. In the meantime, I'd gone on YouTube, and 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 if you're interested, you could kind of check this out on your own. Search what happened when I quit caffeine, and there's a bunch of like people who go on there and they talk for like 15 minutes about what happened to them, and um and so I I saw seen like maybe three or four of these, and I'm just like you know, and I'd been drinking coffee since I was 16. Let me just say that as well. So I'm not a, I wasn't a dabbler, um, and I said okay, I'm done with it cold turkeyed myself from coffee and nicotine at some point i just said enough's enough absolute potato for three weeks was who i was like shell of a person at work like literally like a warm body sitting in a chair pretending to be a human that could do things like like watching netflix that that was that was me for three weeks and then the craziest thing started to happen um i had more kind of i was a lot more relaxed and my energy levels went through the roof like while i used to kind of like crash that wasn't happening anymore i could work well into the evening i how sad is this i used to hate reading books to my daughter at bedtime because i would be crashing from um, caffeine it would just be this irritation that i would have to do um and and that completely changed. I could sit there and enjoy reading books to her because I wasn't like crashing from all these stimulants during the day. And I started sleeping like a teenager. I, um, you know, I would have these like back when I was using a lot of stimulants, I would wake up in the middle of the nights sometimes and I'd never be able to get back to bed. I don't know if you've ever had this, but you like wake up and you feel it in your stomach. It's like, you know, that there's like a little adrenaline surge. There's something going on and you're like, I'm up, you know, it's, it is what it is completely went away i i would be able to fall asleep at night really easily and i mean my own story with xanax actually started through this because i was um um on and off for several years i was taking xanax um because my sleep was so disrupted and and so everything went away i used to have chronic back pain and then that went away as well um and so this is not going to happen for everyone this is probably it's it's an anecdote. It's what happened to me. If you're just having coffee, it probably won't happen to you. But if you're in this picture where maybe you're on coffee and you're on nicotine or you're on like these stimulants and you come off them, give it a go. Try it for like a month to two months and just see what happens to your mood and your your, your irritability, your anxiety. Another thing was I got so much faster at work. I used to nitpick over little things like a perfectionist. What completely went away. And so there was all these tiny little things that I noticed that improved. Oh, I used to drink like like three like white claws a night because I was crashing as well. So it just ended up being this thing that was this like this gateway drug in a way where like all of a sudden I'm drinking alcohol and I'm on like Xanax and like and so all of it stopped, no cravings, everything went away, like my back stopped hurting and and so it had a massive effect on me. I ended up making my wife do this as well. She did not notice as big of a change as me. The only thing that she noticed really was that 
she completely stopped craving alcohol in the evening. You know, we would drink wine at night. And so I'm not going to say this is going to happen to you, but if you see yourself in, in the story of someone who's having these like weird, like weird episodes of fatigue and things like that, drop it for like a couple of months, it may change your life. Um, and so that's, that's the story. That's where I like come from and, and why I always make people do it. And, and it's not just me in the benzo community as well. This is really common knowledge. Everyone will say, you know, drop stimulants before you start to taper a sedative. It just makes things easier, but kind of give you a bit of color about where I come from on that. Well, you've, you've walked the talk. So how did you will yourself to survive those three weeks and what encouragement or resources do you give people who are trying to deal with that awkward phase? How did I get through it? Honestly, like, I don't know. I, th- I think I was so bought in, like I'd convinced myself at that point, like that it was almost like toxic for me in some way that I was super motivated to give it a go. But I think you need to get yourself ready to 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 pretend to be a human like at work is, is, is the main thing. It's like, you're not going to be able to do anything like, and it's like, do you need to take some time off? Do you need to get really good at just doing like the bare minimum? I mean, it's like the main things for me, like I didn't have the headaches. Thankfully, I know some people have ripping headaches when they come off it. Mine was just like the most profound apathy and lack of desire to do anything. I mean, the hardest part for me was how unhappy my wife was with me because like she would just see someone who was just like laying in bed watching like Netflix, like like straight up in like the middle of the day, like just just like no, nothing. But <laughs> but when I turned a corner, she was like, oh my God, I have like my husband back. You know, he's not this like cranky grouch that he used to be. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. All right. Let's yeah. talk about benzodiazepines. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've talked about benzodiazepine over prescription as well as withdrawal. And I, I want to first frame the issue of overprescription. So first of all, when we talk about benzos, uh, for people who don't know what that means, can you rattle off some drug names that that's referring to? Yeah. Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, Temazepam. Ativan. Ativan. Um, yeah, it's, it's a class of medications that came onto the US market in the 50s, probably the most commonly prescribed drugs you know, prior to the 70s people started to learn that they were like kind of bad around then and then they've kind of become a little less popular, but they're still like massively used. Um, the main issue with the benzos is that most people should know that they're a good short-term solution, you know, for less than like a month to six weeks, they're commonly prescribed for short-term anxiety. Think about someone like dying and you really need something for like a little bit and it's just keeping it together. That's okay. You know, think about safe use of benzos, like you're going on an airplane and you're afraid of, afraid of flying. That That's okay. But the main issue is the people who get started on these medications by doctors and then they just get continued without anyone ever telling them that they have massive, massive like opiate, like like fentanyl morphine levels of like dependence formation where like, I mean, it's even worse than that. Like some people, and this is not everyone, like but there is a group of people who get on these drugs and they can not stop it without severe, severe problems. And that usually kicks in after sometimes as soon as like a month, but you know, usually it's after, you know, several months of youth, you, you've changed your brain substantially to a level where you cannot just pull that drug out without it totally causing us, you know, severe symptoms. 
So for people who aren't familiar with these drugs, basically they're downers, right? Yeah. Uh, they um, they have an immediate a- anxiolytic or anxiety-reducing impact, as opposed to something like SSRIs, where you take it for a few weeks before you even notice anything. This is something where, just like a cup of coffee, you can feel it right away. Um, when you take a benzo, you feel it right away. And so that's why they're good for those short-term things like um, – often prescribed to people who have occasional panic attacks. It's something you could take if you were in a state of panic that within a few minutes you would start to notice a difference. Um, and it, it was always my understanding uh, as someone in the mental health field that, you know, exactly what you said, right? That these are short-term, usually given in small prescriptions to be taken occasionally under very particular circumstances. And so I was very disturbed when I noticed um, that every now and then I would see a patient who was given free reign by their psychiatrist to take a benzo daily. Um, and I, I remember um, seeing this and and having a conversation with a patient like, so did they tell you that, you know, like what, what are the conditions under which this is prescribed? And that what I've sort of surmised from it is that there are maybe patients who are considered treatment resistant or they've tried a bunch of different medications and don't work for them. And maybe this is somebody who's not really at a high functioning level. Maybe they're dependent on others. And, and it just seems like there's some psychiatrists kind of throwing the towel. All right, fine. You're going to, you're going to take benzos daily. If that's what keeps you from Mm -hmm. freaking out. Um, so how, common is this phenomenon of benzos being prescribed not for occasional use in high-functioning people with occasional panic attacks or phobias, but for daily use? And where does that lead? Um, so I don't, I don't have the statistic, but I'd say it's pretty common. Um, I'd say that everyone would, would probably know one or two people in this boat, you know, kind of like your first, you know, uh, group of people around you who you know. Um, where does it leave people in this group? So I'm going to say the majority are okay. You know, they, they they take it, maybe even it's for five years or something like that. They decide to come off and they taper it in a couple of weeks and it's okay and they move on with their life. That's the majority of people. I don't want to scare you if you're on a bed that has a pain. But there is a group, maybe it's 5%. Again, no one, no one really knows because this is not what research studies are surrounded uh, do. There is a group of people that, when they start to lower the drug, they develop a full-blown neurotoxicity. Like there is something about this medication that when you start to reduce it, um, maybe it's, you know, because GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It opposes another transmitter called glutamate, which is excitatory. And so this is all hypothesis right now, but maybe for some people when you withdraw it, it causes too much of a surge in that excitatory neurotransmitter and it becomes toxic. You know, it starts to damage neurons. And it's not just a withdrawal at that point. We're talking about brain damage. And it's not a return to the original symptoms because people, when they're going through this, they're not complaining about, oh, I have some insomnia or I have some anxiety. I mean, they have those things. But they start complaining about their muscles twisting underneath their skin, getting electric shocks, deafening ringing in their ears from tinnitus. Their system is so sensitized that they cannot even go to like a restaurant when there's people around them because the, just the sound and the light becomes overwhelming to them to the point it gives them a headache. 
they feel like they've been punched in the gut you know just they constantly feel like winded and the other thing is for the vast majority of people who develop this toxicity during withdrawal when you introduce the drug again it doesn't go away meaning you're not talking about withdrawal you're talking about some something that's damaged someone's nervous system so you have someone who's got a neurotoxicity drug reaction and um you've just you've thrown the drug back on it doesn't really do anything maybe it it just superimposes that drug effect on top of this damaged nervous system and uh people kill themselves when they're in this position um it's it's horrific it can last several years it has a great prognosis over time if you can keep people alive uh long enough a lot of people are better by two years but some people are still recovering like five years later and sometimes even longer um and it was only recently acknowledged by the fda like in in, in um i think it was 2019 end of 2019 they, they finally put it in the drug labels uh, but for a long time, these people just existed on forums like Benzo Buddies, kind of supporting each other while they were getting through. But yeah, it, it's it, it's an absolute nightmare. Like no one should take this medication unless they're aware that there's like, I don't know, a 1 in 20, 1 in 50, 1 in 100, who knows, chance that when you try and come off this drug, if you've been on it for longer than you know a couple of months, it could actually ruin your life. Wow. It's it's terrifying and it's just so shocking that people are that the doctors are doing this to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's like the interesting thing, right? So why are doctors still doing this to people? Like when, um, you know, when it's in all of the drug labels now. Um, and the interesting thing was when the FDA updated the labels, they didn't do any like proactive uh, risk mitigation, which is usually a dear doctor letter. You send letters to you know, the key prescribing groups. So for benzos, it would be gynecologists, family medicine doctors, psychiatrists, you know, the the groups that you think would do that kind of primary care type prescribing. They didn't do that. So they just kind of slid it into the label. And like, you know, most doctors, they're not like reviewing the labels all the time or maybe engaged in looking at that stuff. So they don't know. Um, And the worst thing is the ones that do know about this, who saw like the the letter when it came out, they end up freaking out and they end up doing like rapid withdrawals on people. And that's actually how I get like a lot of people. They, there'll be like a little old lady who's like 75, who's been on this drug for 20 years. And the doctor looks at it and goes, oh, wow, you know, this is a terrible thing, you know, with dependence on these medications, we're going to pull you off. I'm not prescribing it to you anymore. They get like rapid tapered. And because they do it too rapidly, they cause the protracted withdrawal injury. And, you know, that person would have been about a thousand times better if they had just stayed on the drug until they died. But now they're in protracted withdrawal because frequently it's triggered by a rapid um, withdrawal. And then, you know, they end up in like some detox or an inpatient psych unit. They get put on loads of uh, gabapentin or Seroquel or something like that. And they just are functioning so poorly. That's really scary. Yeah. I'm grateful that I have such a highly sensitive nervous system because I can feel these things right away. Like I, the few times that I've taken a benzo for short-term anxiety, I feel the withdrawal effects like six hours later. Like I feel Mm -hmm. an immediate spike in my anxiety as soon as it wears off. And so for me, it's just like, oh, I see how this would be addictive. I see how this is not worth it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But oh, to be, to be, conditioned that deeply into dependence on such a hard drug 
and, and the doctors tell them as well they go it's fine everyone takes these every day it's it's not a big deal don't worry we'll be able to get you off them later on because i mean they're and they're generalizing because like i said like a lot of people do take them every day and then they come off them and they're fine and so they generalize it but without knowing that there's a a growing number of people um who it's not easy for you know and it's really really bad and so what do you do when you know there's a group of people who really don't do well with the rapid withdrawal you kind of have to do it for everyone because the consequences of not doing it properly like are so life-changing it that that, that kind of needs to be that the norm it's this you know five to ten percent cuts every two to four weeks checking in with them closely if it gets too much you kind of slow the rate down i mean that's the general philosophy on how to do it safely and that should be done for everyone the same thing happens for antidepressants as well everything i just said about benzos holds true for antidepressants a small group of people causes a brain you know structural brain changes if they're pulled out too quickly they become toxic and then even if you reintroduce the drug they're still completely debilitated um mm. and they do the same thing that they have to do that gradual taper and it recovers over many months to sometimes many years so i have three questions for you on antidepressants um i just have so many i'm trying to keep track of them all yeah. um let me just review them all now one is what about lamotrigine because i saw that you did an interview about that and it's different from your usual ssris um another is the birth control to antidepressant pipeline and then finally the thing that i originally got in touch with you about is the post ssri sexual dysfunction so are any of those particularly calling to you yeah i think i think probably the the Middle two, I would say. I mean, so there's PSSD. What was the second one you said again? Um, so first I said lamotrigine, then the yeah. birth control to antidepressant pipeline. Birth control. Okay. So the lamotrigine one, we'll get that out of the way quickly. There's nothing that special about lamotrigine. It's, it, it, the, 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 the withdrawal symptoms are uh, usually like massive fatigue and things like that. Lamotrigine is like a slightly different drug, but the same principles like apply to tapering it. Um, but the We'll just go in order. I, I think they're all kind of interesting. So, mm -hmm. the oral contraceptive pill to, to psychiatric medication kind of pipeline, it's kind of like the caffeine to psychiatric medication pipeline or the nicotine to, hey, to psychiatric stop, medication. Stop pipeline. taking jabs yeah. at my drug of choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to, I will. I will. It's, it's the thing is, it's fine for a lot of people. And, and you've got to mm -hmm. appreciate that nuance. And that there's a lot of people on caffeine, it's, it's doing no problems to them at all. They'll come off and they'll be like, this sucks, put me back on it. You know, my life didn't get any better. But, and, and so that's the same with the oral contraceptive pill. There are a group of people, and you can look in the drug labels for these things that have worsening depression and anxiety when they take it. You know, these are hormone modulating drugs, you know, they're neuro, you know, neuroendocrine. Um, products and, and and they make people depressed and anxious and sometimes to the point where they unexpectedly become suicidal how do you know if this is happening to you take the drug typically within the first couple of months you start noticing unexpected changes in your mood oh you're more irritable than normal you're more depressed you're more anxious look at the context of the person's life look at the context of your life if, if it's not lining up with some new stressor you're probably having an adverse drug reaction um, and if you go and see like a doctor that's not aware of this, they go, ah, oh, you're, a, you know, you're a young person, you know, a lot of depression and anxiety starts around that time. Let's just pop you on some Lexapro, you know? And if you're already having an adverse reaction and now you're on Lexapro, 
maybe it makes your irritability worse. Maybe you become disinhibited in some way. Uh, actually, you know, now I can really see what was going on. You were developing bipolar disorder, and now we need to get you on some uh, Seroquel, you know, and then and 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 a psychiatric patient is born, you know. So yeah. um, that's really how it happens. I mean, it can happen with a lot of other drugs as well. You know, common ones could be things like like Singular, which is that asthma drug, and also it's it's used for allergic rhinitis. There's prominent psychiatric side effects with that, which people aren't aware of. Accutane is the other big one as well. That medication, you know, they have a big warning about don't take Accutane when you're you know if you're sexually active because it causes birth defects, and that should be there. But the other big warning for Accutane should be, you know, monitor your mood carefully because it can make people the same thing, depressed, anxious, irritable, and it can be super confusing. And there's a whole host of other drugs out there, um, like different types of antibiotics and anti-malarial drugs. And there's a, there's a million of them that have these subtle psychiatric things that if you're not clued in and knowing what they're doing, um, yeah, you could become a psychiatric patient without even knowing, you know. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I want to comment on this as a woman um, because, again, I have a highly sensitive nervous system. I feel things before other before they reach the magnitude that a lot of other people feel them for better or for worse. It's, it's a, a gift and a curse. And so for me, whenever I've tried taking anything that alters my hormones, it makes me feel crazy. I mean, I remember the first time I tried hormonal birth control, I could not stop crying for a week. And it was like, okay, I know I'm a sensitive person, but this is a little excessive. And I, I, I started to feel like I was being poisoned by these excessive amounts of my own sex hormones in my system. And so I stopped. And I know a lot of women don't have that effect. Some even feel like birth control levels out their mood. But given that that's my own experience, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this in my clinical practice that I, I meet a, a young woman in her teens or twenties 
who started taking birth control within the first, let's say, year or two after menarche or after the, the onset of menstruation. So she might have been 12, 13, 14, 15 when she started taking birth control, not because she was sexually active in most cases, usually because she was having acne or painful periods. And so birth control is just so handed out to these girls very readily, like this will control your acne, this will make your periods lighter, or or you can not have them at all, or make, you know, and so it's just given as the solution. And because adolescence is this destabilizing time with the onset of hormones and all the social stuff going on, it's also, like you said, uh, just a time that a lot of uh, girls present with depression and anxiety. And so then they get put on antidepressants and, and it's never evaluated whether the, the birth control might have something to do with why she is such an emotional wreck. And then I see her 10 years later. I see her at 24 in my office and she has been on birth control and antidepressants for her entire young adulthood since since puberty all the way until through college and then there's a question of does she know does she feel like she knows herself right there is that emotional numbing um, we also know that birth control impacts women's sexual attraction. Um, so for anyone looking for resources on that, doc Dr. Sarah Hill has a really good book on This Is Your Brain on Birth Control. So um, who a girl is even romantically interested in, um, all of this kind of stuff can can be impacted. And so I, I'm, I'm glad that you said something about it. It sounds like you've also observed that it's not just hormonal birth control. It's actually a lot of drugs that aren't that the, the reason they're prescribed isn't psychiatric, but they can end up having these psychiatric impacts. And I know, I mean, when you think about drugs in, in, a, in a young person, whether it's maybe it's a hormonal birth control that's having mood-altering effects, but especially an antidepressant, if it goes along with that, what does that do to someone's maturation when, you know, maybe they're less interested in the opposite sex or, you know, whoever they want their partner to be romantically, you know, in general, and then so you've taken someone in this critical period of their life and you've blunted them to the extent that, you know, it's it's harder for them to form relationships in this critical period where, I mean, men and women, I mean, we don't really know how to have relationships until we have them. I mean, you want to be in them and learning about the other person and you want to be able to have sexual relationships and, and figure all of that stuff out. It's it's quite possible that you that you hit the pause button in many ways on someone's emotional maturation when you when you throw a drug in there that cranks the volume down to such a degree that that um you know that that part is turned off and, and maybe they don't have relationships and maybe they don't have to figure difficult things out like conflict in the same way that they would they would because maybe they just put up with a lot of shit that they normally wouldn't have because they're kind of blunted out and maybe that was their pathology to begin with and maybe that was the thing that a therapist should have been working with them on is how to stand up for yourself and get yourself out of an abusive relationship. And you just, you hit the pause button on that. And then this person wakes up at 35 with the emotional maturation of like a 16 year old. And they just go, excuse me, can I have like the last 15 years of my life back? Why did everyone cheerlead me onto these drugs? And now you're looking at people around you and it's like, like what happened to me? I mean, that's the worst case scenario. I know I'm painting a bleak picture there are some people that get on these medications. It's totally fine and they go through all of these things, but there's people who don't and there's people that that happens to. And if someone is not watching out for that, um, it's 
I mean, it's like a, it's, it's really sad. I mean, it, you know, you know, it makes me feel sad thinking about it. I see, hear that a lot. I see it a lot. Yeah. Wow. The impact on one's sense of self and ambitions and relationships. There are stories of women getting into relationships with men while they were on birth control. And then they go off of birth control because they're ready to have a baby with him. And suddenly they're not attracted to him anymore. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to post. Well, I was, I was, I was going to say, you know, before yep. we go that we'll get to PSSD, I'll throw, uh-huh. you know, I'll throw, uh, you know, the, a Molotov cocktail in here Ooh. as well, because I know you talk about, um, the gender identity stuff as well, but why, why are there so many asexual people out there now as well? You know, is there an increase in, in, in people identifying as, as trans because it's more socially acceptable? Possibly. Yeah. It's more in the news. But how about the fact that we're probably the most medicated adolescent generation that's ever been, and so many people are on drugs which completely zap someone's sexual drive. I mean, if I was a young person and I was just like, oh, well, my friend over here is like, he's really like attracted to these people and he's going after it and they're doing it and it's just working for them, you know, and it's not working for me. And in fact, I don't really feel these things i'm struggling to have connections with people and i'm sad well i'm going to put together the fact that i'm sad and that i'm not sexually attracted to anyone and oh you know this person has been saying that like you know maybe maybe i'm the wrong gender you know maybe i'm asexual like it, it's there's so many ways that this can play out into someone's identity I, I talked to a lot of the pssd guys and this is a segue who ended up thinking they were gay you know they were just like I'm trying to have sex with this girl I thought I would be attracted to. I cannot get it up. I'm not interested. Maybe I like guys. Like what that does to you, it's like what a trip, you know? And 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 a bad one, a deeply confusing one. And uh so yeah, these these things come and they they can play out in like a million different areas. Yeah, kids who have been on Zoloft um and or antidepressants since they were however old. And then they're not having those same feelings combined with this highly sexualized environment where if you're a girl, you have to look like a porn star or an Instagram model only to be treated in a disrespectful manner. And and if you're a guy, you have to fit these stereotypes. It's no wonder that so many kids feel like I don't fit any of those things or I want you know, a lot of girls also escaping into a transmasculine identity as a way of protecting themselves from being sexualized before they're ready or in a way that feels invasive or unwanted to them. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, while we're talking about hormones, um, there's also um, the impact of puberty blockers on sexual development, right? Kids administered puberty blockers, according to WPATH guidelines, will never achieve sexual functioning. So we have to ask who who would want that for a generation of children. Um, and then the fact that people who are put on cross-sex hormones, um, there's there's been research on this, end up um, taking more psychiatric meds, not less, right? So the whole the whole flawed uh, hypothesis on which this uh, gender medicine is based is that this is supposed to alleviate psychological distress in the long term. And and we know that there is some short-term placebo effect for people who have built it up in their minds that this is going to be the solution. Um, But uh, if we look at the long term, we know that people who are put on 
prescriptions for cross-sex hormones are on higher doses of other psychiatric medications long-term, which is one of the reasons that I felt stunted as a therapist when I was working with this population because I was seeing people after they'd had surgical and hormonal interventions and they still had all these psychiatric symptoms. And I felt like I could never quite ask, had you hoped that this surgery or that these medications or that masculinizing yourself, had you hoped that that was going to make you a happier person, free of anxiety and depression, you know, and we couldn't talk about that elephant in the room. Is that something that you're willing to comment on? Have you seen sort of the polypharmacy of people on cross-sex hormones? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same. I mean, you pull up the drug labels for any of these things. It should be well known for like anyone prescribing these things that they cause an absolute emotional roller coaster for this, for this vulnerable group of people who are typically very depressed and anxious. You know, many of them have trauma and different things going on as well. And they're going making these massive decisions about, you know, taking cross-sex hormones or going reassignment surgery and things like that. And then you you put them in an emotional roller coaster as well by giving them hormones and starting them and stopping them. Massively, I mean, I mean, it has to be done by someone really skilled. It's 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 not a light decision to take these things. I mean, you many of these people who who are thinking about this i mean they're they're already unhappy to the point where they've likely already had a suicide attempt or they've been thinking about suicide that's the kind of sadness that you need i think to get to the point where you're like maybe i need to do something this drastic and then and then the solution to that is to put them on drugs that can destabilize their mood um and so it's it doesn't surprise me that, you know, that when people kind of go through it, it's not, you know, we're not hearing like headlines saying, oh, you know, gender reassignment surgery, it's all positive. People feel like a thousand times better afterwards. It's no, it's like they're, they're now on like hormones that are destabilizing for the mood. And there's maybe for some people, it's not a problem, but there's going to be a group in there who are just not doing well because of that. And then they're not doing well. Oh, okay. Instead of looking at the hormones, because we're not going to touch that because, we don't want to be stigmatizing or make things more difficult for you. It's okay. We've got something else. Let's stack some Lexapro. And then you're kind of, you're going down that, that pathway now. Um, and that's really easy to start accumulating several drugs that way as well. And so here's a segue between that subject and PSSD, which is the reality mm-hmm. for a lot of these males. So um, we, we know from the research of people like Ray Blanchard um, and James Cantor, that um, amongst the males with gender dysphoria, they typically fall into one of two categories. Now we are seeing a younger cohort emerging that is more the ROGD and doesn't fit the classical pattern, but there's basically the autogynephilic and the, uh, the homosexual transsexuals. And so for the men for whom there's autogynephilia, which there's a high comorbidity rate there with narcissistic personality disorder, as one would expect, because it's, you know, translation, you know, falling in love with yourself as, as the opposite sex. Right. So for, for men who have that autogynephilic fetish, where for them, it's a sexual fetish where they feel aroused by the idea of themselves as a woman. And then they're given this misinformation about, um, about sexuality and gender and all of that. They're told that they can become a woman. Then they pursue cross-sex hormones or surgeries and those kill their sex drive. So this is a frequent complaint, right? Whether it's that they've had, let's say, an orchiectomy and then they're they're no longer able to have sex because they, they don't have a drive or they can't get it up for that reason, 
or men who are taking estrogen and now they're experiencing erectile dysfunction or lack of sex drive from that. So a lot of these um, trans-identified males end up kind of caught up in this loop where what drives them into it is their sex drive. Um, But then once they pursue these irreversible medical interventions, um, the very thing that drove them into it is now no longer available to them. And they're kind of in this, in this no man's land. Yeah. With like no doctors to help them, you know, it's just like the people that everything's going to be like fine on the other side, you know? And then, I mean, so yeah, I mean, the se- I guess the segue into in, in, into the sexual problems, sexual dysfunction, right? yeah, yeah, PSSD. Like, so, so PSSD, it's it's un- it's uncommon. You know, there's tens of thousands of people come off antidepressants every single year, no problems. Sex drive comes back within a couple of weeks, sometimes a couple of months. But there is a group of people who have what appears to be permanent sexual dysfunction or sexual dysfunction that heals very slowly over time. The, um, the problem with the term PSSD is that it, it's a much broader constellation of symptoms. When you, when you talk to the people who have this condition who are really sick, they're not just, I mean, they don't even really care so much about the sexual problems. They have um, neurological problems, which they care about a lot. They experience such a sense of derealization and disconnection from the world, which is kind of like an exaggerated effect of these drugs to begin with. They feel so disconnected emotionally from what's happening in their environment that they feel like they're watching a movie. Oh, maybe that doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, maybe not for like a you know an hour or two, but if that's like your life and your like daughter comes and gives you a hug or your wife gives you a hug and you feel nothing or someone in your family dies and you're so shut down from your emotions that's nothing there it's not even worth living at that point you know a life without emotions is really sad and so they have a massive amount of emotional blunting and derealization and then also there's this in the ones that are really sick they have a hard time concentrating as well it, you know cognitively they've they've taken a bit of a hit um and so that, that that's the constellation it's it's massive emotional blunting and detachment plus um you know uh inability to have an orgasm maintain an erection you get you know achieve lubrication or do any of those those things that all of that kind of turns off um and some people gradually get better over time but there's some people who've had this for like decades now um the other thing is i mean this is such a horrific thing to happen to people you know you got to think about the practice of putting like you know, 10, 12-year-old kids on this, teenagers on this that, you know, were broken up with, you know, college kids that move away from their parents, you know, to a new city and they're sad because it's a big life change. Someone who loses a job, you know, someone going through a divorce. Again, you know, like what do you do when something is uncommon like this and it's not happening to everyone? I, I think you've got to tell everyone about it. There is a rare chance. We do not know how big it is that if you start this drug, may cause sexual dysfunction that may never go away. Um, and, I, and I don't think this means that people never take it, but it's you need to integrate that into your decision-making. It's like, and that's why I'm saying, like, if you, if you do have severe depression and anxiety and it's coming out of nowhere or maybe you're trapped in a situation where you cannot change your contextual stresses and you're at the point where you want to end your life, take it. You know, the risk-benefit equation is in your favor in there especially if it's rare you can take that medication but 
these days it's so easy for someone to just walk in and just say hey i'm just like having a hard time because you know xyz contextual stressor that is going to go away in a couple of months easily it's normal or or if it's not you know hey we'll send you to a therapist and they'll help you get through it you know they will guide you through it that that doesn't happen anymore frequently people just go in and they see their doctor they tell them hey it's okay you know everyone takes these medications it'll be right and then just put them on them and and, and people are feeling massively betrayed and, and and let down by their providers for not informing them on just how bad things can get. Is there anything that is predictive of who's most likely to have this permanent sexual dysfunction, like maybe the length of time on the meds or any demographic issues? No, no, there's there's nothing. And, and it kind of, and there's nothing for the benzo withdrawal problems or the antidepressant withdrawal problems or really any of the side effects, because that's not how things work in drug research. You know, if, if you have a rare side effect, like of a drug that that's not that uncommon, you have to kind of scoop all these people up and put them in a study and, you know, sequence their genome, track all of their, like, you know, their defining characteristics and do some kind of analysis. No one's paying for that. No one's going to do it. FDA doesn't care. Like pharmaceutical company doesn't care. It's, it's expensive to do that. They just put it in the label and then the people who have been hurt are just kind of on their own. And so there's never going to be any kind of investment in developing protective risk factors for these horrific, more uncommon side effects. Um, and That's scary. It's super scary, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, because everything, everything drug research wise is skewed towards approval. You know, we're going to do our double blind randomized placebo controlled trial. And we'll, and, we'll, and we'll collect the stuff on the common side effects, the common ones that happen while that's going on. But the rare severe ones, like there's no regulatory mandate. They're not making people do these studies. Like, um, And another interesting one is for tardive dyskinesia. If you haven't heard of that one, it's that facial movement and sometimes global body movement from antipsychotic medications. So people who are on chronic antipsychotic medication for schizophrenia, they yeah, they develop facial movements at a rate of one in 20 per year. It's 5% incidence. This has been happening since the 50s. This is a horrific thing to happen to someone on these medications, like um, a permanent movement disorder, like where you look like the Joker from the Batman movie with like a facial twitch the whole time. It's very poor, bad for someone's self-esteem. There's no predictive studies on this. Um, and, and I mean, this drug has been used for like 70 years um and so there's just a general lack of interest in really getting to the bottom of these things you know in terms of funding and i, I so i am i'm not holding my breath for anything to change soon so it's just you just have to be cautious there's no predictive risk factors just know it's a risk that cannot be predicted and you, you better make sure it's worth it if you're going to start one of these things so you've said that you're not 100% anti-psychiatric meds, that there are times that the risk-benefit analysis would suggest that it is worth it for someone. And something that you've mentioned a few times in this conversation is that if someone is feeling suicidal, then certainly it's it's better to take a drug that has some side effects or risks than to take your life. And I, I can't imagine there's anyone who would disagree with that. That being said, though, from a, a glance at your YouTube channel, I certainly haven't watched all your videos. I know you also talk about how 
increased suicidal ideation is actually another risk with some of these drugs. And and we hear that in the drug commercials too, right? That there are drugs people take for depression that to alleviate their suicidal ideation that actually make it worse. So how do you navigate that? Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're what I would call paradoxical reactions. So when you put someone on an antidepressant, you know, like the majority of people are going to have the intended therapeutic effect, which is a mood constriction without worsening suicidal thoughts. Again, for reasons we don't understand and that we cannot predict, some people become more depressed and more more agitated. Now that doesn't so so when I say they increase the risk of suicidal ideation, that's not globally. It just means that there's some people in that group that are susceptible to responding to them in a bad way. And that risk can just be mitigated by being aware of it, asking those questions, you know, wow, you seem more irritable, you're more moody recently. You, you know, you recently had a dose change or started this medication. Like, is anything else going on in your life that could explain this? If the answer is no, you know, get them off that drug. Um, but a lot of the times people are, they're too busy or they just say, oh, it's just depression and they jack up the dose and the person ends up, gosh, sometimes harming themselves or sometimes being diagnosed with bipolar disorder and just being really confused about, oh, I guess I'm really mentally ill because now I'm doing these unpredictable things that are outside of my personality. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's drug safety for you. It's, it, it's never like global. Everyone responds to things in different ways. You just need to know the whole profile. So when you give someone a drug, you're at least looking for these things. Um, and yeah, uh, times that I use psych drugs, cause yeah, I, I know this whole podcast is about, you know, let Yosef scare you about psychiatric medications. Like here are the here are the times that I would use it. Antidepressants, I mean, you've got to have severe chronic depression and anxiety that's not responding to addressing contextual stresses, you know, diet, stopping, stopping things like drugs and alcohol that can mess with it. If it's at that point and it's at the point where, like, you're so anxious and depressed that you can't work or you can't do anything, take it. You might be able to work. You may be able to actually have a good relationship if you have this, this like, crazy anxiety. Just go for it. I mean, it outweighs the risks for that person because the risks, they are uncommon. You know, the massive chance it's not going to happen to you and this will just be a gift in your life. For bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, I think it's, well, we'll go bipolar first. You know, if you're having a manic episode and you're agitated and you're in a psychiatric unit and you're harming people around you because you're psychotic, I would sedate that person. I would sedate them with large amounts of Zyprexa. You know, I would bring them down. It is not practical in this day and age to let this burn out. Where are you going to put this person where they're not going to harm themselves or others while they're doing it? There's no place to put them. You couldn't pay for it. They have to be in these contained kind of untherapeutic box-like settings and sedated and monitored. That's fine. Uh, Schizophrenia as well. If you have chronic psychosis and you need to use an antipsychotic because otherwise you're constantly coming back into the hospital, there's risks with that. But that if, if that keeps you at a level where you're more functional and maybe your family is better able to kind of keep you in their home and care for you in that situation, go for it. You know, severe autism as well. What are the options for these people with severe autism and dementia? Like sometimes it's just um, using these drugs to kind of keep their behavior under control so their families can care for them because when the families don't, I mean, they end up in group homes and, and different places like that where the care is suboptimal. And, and so it's, it's really challenging. Um, 
knowing when to use them. But there is a use case scenario for all of these drugs, and you really can extract the benefit from them if you are aware of the risks and if people are informed and and things like that. For instance, and the other thing is like bipolar disorder. If you keep people on these drugs chronically, I wouldn't want to do that for most people. I'm going to treat them when they're manic. I'm going to pull them off the drug. And unless they're like manic all the time, I'm not going to put them on it because the risk of me destroying their kidneys and their thyroid with lithium or causing liver damage with Depakote or making them obese with Zyprexa or Seroquel, it's, it's huge. So I don't think anyone should really like, like there's some guidelines out there. Oh, you have two episodes, be on it for life. It's not that simple in the real world when you're talking to people. You need to see mm-hmm. how the actual individual values like their functioning, how bad the the flare-ups are, and, and the profile. You need to adapt to the person across the table from you. Um, yeah, bipolar so. seems like really kind of in between because there there yeah. is an element of psychosis at, in the worst manic states. And yes, people who are bipolar can be a risk to themselves and others, but at the same time, there, there are high-functioning people with bipolar. There are people who meet criteria for bipolar who do mature out of it. And sometimes people go through what seems like manic or depressive phases in response to life stressors. I've definitely seen trauma trigger manic behavior. Um, and so it seems from, from what I know about bipolar that um, if you can get someone to regulate their sleep without use of a lot of medications for that, then you've solved half the battle because by Bipolar is it's partly a sleep and energy regulation disorder. Um, yeah, I'm going to tell, is, is that tell your... them they need, they need to stop caffeine, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, and, and I'm going to say this, the most common reason for bipolar disorder these days, it, it's adverse drug reactions. This is a rare condition, you know, in the, in the past. Like when you look at the data for the, the people who are going into the hospitals with those diagnoses compared to today, the only way I can understand it is that people having adverse reactions to antidepressants where it's like one in 10 in the U S population were taking them for a prolonged period of time in, a, in last, like in, in recent years. I mean, it's that, they're that commonly used. So, so that would be like the main thing. It's like, we're not going to do anything to this person. We can give some out of to help them sleep and we're just not going to put them on Lexapro and we're just going to like, let them kind of come back together. Wow. We have covered a lot of ground. I am so excited about this interview. I can't wait to see all the all the little clips that we're going to pull out from all all these great moments. Um, I, I learned so much, and I trust that our listeners did too if they made it all the way through. And I can't imagine why they wouldn't want to because talk full of information. Um, excellent conversation. Thank you so much. So let's talk about the places people can find you. Um, mm-hmm. Your podcast, Life on Less Meds. Can people find that anywhere podcasts are found? It's yeah, it's on all podcasting platforms, but probably probably my main like my main channel for m- most of it, the one that's kind of the the busiest is YouTube. It's with during psychiatry, um, um, and then I guess if you if you if you are someone who's having a severe adverse reaction or you're on multiple medications and you need to come off them, you could come and look at my private practice that's with during psychiatry.com um and um we work in several states uh, california texas utah coming soon in new york and florida 
um and uh also we're in pennsylvania so um that's where i would go to find us if, if you are in that situation and you want help coming off medications so although you and your wife are in utah you have licenses to work in all of those states as well correct that's, yeah that's a great licenses deas you know we i mean we're we 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 were really founded as like a benzo deprescribing practice, but we've kind of we do the whole thing now. You know, we quickly realize people aren't coming to us just on benzos; they're coming to us on five or six different medications, and so we do we do the whole thing now. It's a really wonderful service that you're offering, and thank you so much for being brave and trusting your gut and learning everything you can so that you can help people with these issues. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, great talking to you. Great talking to you as well. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com. Or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.